Hi everyone, Duncan Green here with the regular roundup of posts on From Poverty to Power. Uh, still recovering from an intense few weeks of uh, teaching on my uh, on the course that we've put together on uh, influencing for senior aid people. There'll be some blogs and um, podcasts and things on that going up next week. But for the moment, I'll just uh, talk you through the last week or so. So uh, I had a links I liked um, there. The one I'd pick out there is just all through the Ukraine war. There's been extraordinary debates going on now and then on Russian TV, which if you're on Twitter, you occasionally you know, come across your timeline. And the, the arguments on the right uh, within Russia over the war are getting more and more ferocious between the kind of completely mindless Putin supporters and the more sort of thoughtful right. And there, uh, there's an extraordinary exchange on, 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 on links I liked um, recently. Then next up, I, I did a book review, um, a book called New Mediums, Better Messages, which is about how innovations in theatre, music, photography, video games, radio and journalism are changing international development. Um, really interesting topic. Uh, I did have a chapter with Maria Faciolince uh, on the blog. Um, it's now become a thing that people want, want, want us to write about because it's been going on so long. Um, but I didn't write about that. Uh, I wrote about the rest of the book. And here's what I had to say. So the intro is, the aid sector and academia do a pretty terrible job of describing real life in poor countries. You'll struggle to find joy, fun, hobbies, parties, chilling, crazy stuff that makes no sense. Even sex is usually portrayed as a risk factor. Short of living somewhere, accessing that other side of life requires reading novels, poetry, or watching films or theatre. That's the world that New Medium's Better Messages explores. Or in the words, in the words of its subtitle, how innovations in translation, engagement, and advocacy are changing international development. And it's open access. Yeah, you can cough up 30 pounds or so for a hardback copy, but you don't need to. So then I just had some quotes, right? From the introduction by the editors, David Lewis, Dennis Rogers, and Michael Woodcock. There is currently renewed interest in conversations between science, social science, and the humanities around the roles of different kinds of knowledge, stories, and data in apprehending the human condition and how they might be more fruitfully integrated. This is an edited volume. It's grouped under those three broad headings of translation, advocacy, and engagement. Translation considers how these new mediums connect with audiences, but also change the message. Advocacy, which kicks off with uh, our chat to me and Maria, does what it says on the tin, while engagement explores how certain artistic mediums and representations can challenge more dominant technocratic ones on issues such as climate change. So it's an edited volume and all edited volumes have strengths and weaknesses. They vary in style and accessibility. I like some chapters that I wasn't that interested in others. I really like chapter one, which is also written by the editors on musical representations and as another source of development knowledge. Uh, because it brought back memories of just how much the protest music of Latin America moved me to activism and inquiry when I was just getting interested in the politics of the region. And I have to say that since then, it feels like my imagination has become a bit impoverished, whether by age or just reading and digesting too much grey literature and evidence-based this or that. The authors make some nice broader points in the conclusion to that chapter. Novels, films and music are part of the communicative media through which many citizens in the global north encounter 
stereotypical images and perceptions of life in the global south and are thereby key mechanisms by which development debates are framed for and experienced by the general public. Popular culture offers communicative mediums vastly more attuned to and resonant with the lived realities of marginalised groups. This implies that making development truly more inclusive will entail not only expanding participation in meetings in narrow terms, but enabling marginalised groups to make and defend claims about themselves, their rivals, their concerns, interests, aspirations and priorities in ways they find most resonant and compelling. And these modalities of communication are unlikely to be those of educated elites in the policy donor and research communities. So basically, if you really are want to be inclusive, don't invite these you know, poor people, marginalised groups to take part in your academic panel. You've got to think much more broadly about how people talk about themselves and their lives and how they absorb information. There are truths about development that are best conveyed in popular mediums. These include the importance of power and representation and the unequal relationships and disjunctures between developers and developed, rich and poor, West and non-West. Biting political critique, satire and advocacy can be conveyed musically in ways that otherwise might, might be regarded as seditious or treasonous, even as music can be used to construct and perpetuate patronising stereotypes. So don't forget we are the world, but yeah, music can play this hugely positive role as I found in Latin America all those years ago. But that's so much for music, but there's something here for everyone. There's a chapter, fascinating chapter on photography, comparing two different photographers, both who work photo photographing Africa's rubbish dumps. Then there's the challenge of writing development fiction, plays or novels. Um, then the more instrumental use of games or radio to get development messages to a wider public. And the way that culture can both depict and enhance climate struggles in Bangladesh and the role of arts festivals in Nigeria and Nepal. Now, they've asked people to write about their own work. So, you know, you have to expect a fair amount of trumpet blowing, including from me. But I still think it's good. Last word to the introduction. At its best, an exchange between the arts and development does more than just call more compellingly for change, diversify the range of perspectives being considered, subvert single stories or present key ideas in innovative forms, vitally important as these all are. If the arts achieve all these things and more, a truly better, more just, locally authentic outcome is actually attained. Uh, and well worth it. And the, uh, the editors will be discussing the book at the LSE and online on 7th of November. So if this is your thing, go, uh, go and register. The details are on the blog. Next up was a podcast. So last week, can it be last week? I think it was last week. Blimey. Uh, I was in uh, Nairobi uh, doing the last of the, uh, of the uh, teaching sessions for Geli, uh, the Executive Leadership Initiative. But I bunked off one, well, uh, before breakfast one morning, I sat down with the Oxfam Kenya country director, John Kitui, who is a really interesting man. And I did a podcast with him on my phone. So the quality is not great, but you can hear what he's saying. And then what I do with podcasts is I put up the podcast, but then I do sort of highlights from the transcript. So now I'm doing a podcast about a podcast, which is slightly weird. Uh, so I'll just give you a few highlights rather than talk you through what you can listen to. If you're into podcasts, you'll be listening to this and therefore you can listen to John directly. But anyway, some of the issues we covered. Localization. 
Sir John said Oxfam has been in Kenya since 1963 and we had massive operations, field offices, a lot of teams on the ground doing direct responses. But with time, we've seen a growth of local actors who are community-based organisations, local civil society organisations, who are on the front line. Kenya also is a country with devolved government. So Oxfam has shifted its focus to supporting local humanitarian leaders to take a more proactive role than traditionally. We closed our field offices in Turkana and Wajir, which are two of the most um, disaster-hit areas of Kenya. And now we purely work with local actors to do the response. Local actors know their contacts better. They know the big pockets of devastation and misery where they can do responses. They take the lead on mobilisation, identifying the most vulnerable households and doing the cash transfers themselves. Oxfam provides technical support with the cash transfers. There are very technical areas that you need to get right. We also provide support with protection, safeguarding, risk management and facilitating linkages with private actors like Safaricom, the big um, uh, uh, telecoms company. So I asked John about the cash transfers and he said, well, once we've mobilised the households, there's a verification exercise to verify that the people who have been put on the uh, team, on the, put by the team on the cash transfer list are genuinely deserving. If they don't have a mobile or a SIM card, the programme then buys for them a SIM card. Then we reach out to Safaricom and ask them to give us the ability to do mass cash transfers to these households. The money goes to individuals through their mobile phones and then they can go to their local M-Pesa shop, which is this famous uh, Kenyan mobile money company, to draw out their cash, or they can just use their mobile money to procure foods in the market. Even in the places that are worst affected in remote areas, people have mobile phones and there is mobile network. So it's really beneficial but also it saves a lot of the administrative costs so that as much money as possible goes to households to help, them cushion, to help to cushion them. And the households get about $80 per month, which buys a fair amount of food, even with food prices the way they are. The other thing we talked about was Oxfam's becoming an advocacy-only office within Oxfam. This is Oxfam Kenya. So uh, I just asked him what that meant. Well, as we're seeing local actors really stepping up, we think we can add more value by influencing the systems that keep people poorer and marginalised and worsen inequality. One of the ways that we're influencing is by modelling a very different way of doing operations. So, for example, local humanitarian leadership has been something that the international humanitarian community has speaking about for a very, very long time. But it hasn't been doing that much because there's a stereotypical narrative, basically a racist narrative, that has frustrated the implementation on the ground. Local actors have no capacity, they cannot be trusted, they have no integrity, they're corrupt, they will not be able to manage large amounts of money. That narrative keeps the power within international NGOs so that they can keep receiving the money and be very tokenistic about local humanitarian leadership. But Oxfam and the others within the Kenya Cash Consortium have shown that trusting partners to lead on local humanitarian responses uh, can really work. We've given them a lot of funds, we've provided technical support, we've helped them build their own capacity to deliver, to manage risk. And they've not disappointed at all. And what's happening now is that other INGOs and donors have started to see this and actually appreciate that local humanitarian leadership works. So we, are part, we, we support something called the uh, uh, the Semi-Arid Lands Humanitarian Network up in the really parched bit of Kenya up in the north. 
and it's now invited to uh, that the, that network is now invited to be in a lot of spaces at the national level coordination campaigns which allow it to influence as well so it's and it's starting to get funded directly from donors so that's a bit of localization which is really working which is great to hear sorry this is me slurping coffee then the final thing i asked him about was this okay so that's advocacy by modeling what about pure advocacy and he gave a couple of examples we saw the livestock bill passed in kenya which criminalized beekeeping of all things we know that especially in the semi-arid lands beekeeping serves many many purposes not just commercial ones in fact that's probably the least important they keep bees for their food as a preservative as medicine people do it for their own traditions and rituals they do it for gifts and they also do it for income by selling honey on the market the parliament passed a law that criminalizes beekeeping because they want to commercialize it it's the capitalist capture of smallholder beekeeping really because they're looking at beekeeping from a gdp maximizing perspective which is wrong we've been trying to work with partners to advocate against that the law says if they don't get certified they will damage the whole industry we're saying that's actually the wrong perspective as the old adage goes we know the price of everything but the value of nothing another example is seeds another act of parliament the seeds and plant varieties act criminalized what they call the selling of non-certified seeds but the act defines selling basically as any kind of exchange barter storage or display so what they're criminalizing are the community's traditions of saving and exchanging seeds with each other or keeping the seeds for the next harvest so now the planting season is a criminal offense punishable with a jail term or a monetary fine the act also dis uh, provides for discovery in inverted commas of plants and seed varieties our interpretation of that is opening up for the multinationals who will lobby us behind this act to come to uh, who are lobbyists behind this act to come and discover traditional seeds that people have been using for millennia and then patent them and then smallholder farmers will have to buy the seeds that they've been using for millennia from these same companies then he also got more sort of cosmic he talked about capitalism as singularity which i thought was really interesting we have this economic singularity that really privileges capitalism as the only model of the economy so you look at forests from a gdp maximization lens you look at agriculture you look at traditional seeds at beekeeping these economic singularities are the biggest threat to our country we think that through movements and coalitions we can try to push for an economic plurality not singularity Capitalism has its place. There's a place for productivity. But then also, can we allow smallholder farmers to continue to provide food for subsistence and to share with each other in their traditional way? That's more resilient compared to monoculture. It's a really interesting, thoughtful man, and uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. And then finally, I had a rant. Sorry, I mean, I have to do this. I just have to get off my chest now and then. Since, since the pandemic essentially ended in the UK, um, I yeah people have been going back to having in, in real life meetings academic seminars and I've been going to a few of these and dismayed to find that they are just as bad as they were before uh, the pandemic so I had a bad rant about which is worse bad zoom or bad in real life since in real life contact resumed I have been some classically terrible academic seminars and it and I uh, Nothing much changed. I did a rant on this in 2016 and I linked to that. Here are my notes from one recent purgatorial experience. 
Forgotten just how bad academic seminars can be. Come back, COVID, all is forgiven. And then some bullets about from my notes, not reading the room, which is full of people who know the context. So they spend most of the time telling us stuff we already know. PowerPoint slides of 100 plus words and no images leads to PowerPoint karaoke, where people just read out the, the slides, dreadful. Failing to pull out any new or interesting finding, findings, assuming they exist. Saying repeatedly, sorry, don't have time to go into details. I'm just going to stick to platitudes and generalities. The good stuff is all in the paper, but the paper isn't published yet. So I can't do what I like to do during these things, which is get the paper and start trawling through it in search of nuggets while keeping half an ear on the presentations. And then going over into the question and answer time and the lunch break and all the sort of time for interaction. But actually, because people were totally numbed by the presentations, there probably aren't that many questions anyway. And first question to a man, I keep saying to people, there's brilliant research which shows if the first question goes to a woman in an academic seminar, you tend to get a 50-50 balance across men and women of people asking questions. If the first question goes to a man, it tends to be 75-25. So if you're chairing a meeting, just wait until a woman puts up her hand and ask her first. It's not that difficult and it makes a big difference. So conclusion in my notes was kill me now. So why hasn't this changed after all the seminars on presentation skills, on the importance of impact for research, telling people not to have more than 20 words per slide. So a few thoughts in, in the seminars, you know, my seminar notes. Maybe it works on some other level. Performative academic, where incentives require you to present in a certain way, even if it turns off the audience. Or the ability to do POVO, point of view of the other, is still not taken seriously or encouraged. Academia prioritises getting your own ideas clear in your own head, much over helping others get them into theirs. NGOs just love telling people what's good for them, what's important and right. Neither of them really care about getting in, putting themselves in the shoes of the people listening to them. And then back to the 2016 post, which was actually about conferences full of coma-inducing panels, but covered some similar ground. With my How Change Happens hat on, the obvious question is, why haven't things changed already? And I have a rule of thumb, which is three eyes. If something doesn't change, is it ideas, institutions or interests that are keeping things this way, that are blocking progress? So ideas, maybe people genuinely think this format is the best possible or just lack imagination. How do you undermine that view and get in recognition of alternatives? Institutions is part of the reason for the leaden top-down formats that organisers want to control the agenda, pump out their own material. Does everyone need to be on a panel, on a platform, with at least 20 minutes to talk about themselves or their interests? If so, very hard to get away from panelism, overstuffed panels overrunning on time. Interests. Academics have to write papers for career advancement and to feed the funding beast. In Britain, it's the Research Excellence Framework which says you have to get published. You, know, you need publications. But does that really mean they have to present and discuss them in such a mind-numbing way? So the seminars haven't changed much post-COVID, but this week I was subjected to something even worse. Bad Zoom. Someone talking at high speed through a 50-plus slide presentation for an hour without any interaction. Most people had their cameras off, and I suspect they were either not in the room at all, 
or they're in the room doing their emails or just watching videos of cats and baby goats, which are very entertaining. So compare and contrast bad Zoom and bad in real life. At least if you make the sacrifice of getting to an in real life seminar, you tend to stay focused and try and find some jewels or at least a few shiny stones in the porridge and perhaps some networking with new people on the margins if there's any time left for that after the inevitable run over. Even though the time sacrifice, yeah, the time sacrifice and the opportunity cost is much greater with the added travel uh, to a real life event, it's really hard to think of any other redeeming features to a bad Zoom call. So some of the comments are saying things like, yeah, but at least Zoom is democratic, so it's democratically bad, whereas uh, bad in real life is an undemocratically bad one because you have to be invited. Well, yeah, okay, I take that. I'll be interested in other people's views. And on that grumpy old man note, uh, I will stop now and I'll be back next week with more on uh, the Gelly program and other things. Have a great weekend. Bye.